All right, late night here on Thursday night, Pacific Coast time, the one and only true time zone, at least after about like, you know, 1970 or so. I thought you were going to say after uh, 7 p.m. or so. (laughs) Well, uh, it is the one and only true time zone for the first series that we're going to talk about, Golden State and Sacramento, the I-80 series. Not only is this the first time that these two teams have played one another in the playoffs, this is the first time that the Warriors and Kings have ever made the playoffs in the same season. Wow. Is that since they've been in California? That can't be. Yeah, I, I mean, since, yeah, yeah, since the Kings. It's still incredible. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I mean, I'm sure, like, you know, the Philadelphia Warriors and the Cincinnati Royals made the playoffs in the same season. That that probably happened. But, yeah, since 1985 and the Kings moved here, they've never made the playoffs in the same season. Yeah, people forget when, when we, I'll say we, I'm involved, when we talk bad about the Kings, we used to talk pretty similarly about the Warriors. They had a lot of lean years, too. It's crazy how quick things can change. Yeah, well, and and the Kings, I mean, they were awful basically until they had like a five-year stretch. And then they were awful again. I mean, I think they only made the playoffs twice in Sacramento, I want to say, before the weber Divots era. That's and right. then, obviously, since 2006, uh, they I think they made it every year from 99 to 06. And they had made it since then. And the Warriors went from 94 to 07 uh, without a, a playoff berth. Yeah, to uh, uh, Northern California basketball has not been had an illustrious history uh, until the last 10 years or so. Um, I guess where I want to start in discussing this, you could talk about, all right, the Kings, they had the best raw offensive efficiency in NBA history. You could talk about the way that the Warriors have defended this. You can talk about the Warriors road issues. You can talk about, ah, the Kings defense, not too great. Neither is the Warriors. This series to me is ultimately all about the golden state warriors like yeah the kings okay they don't have a ton of playoff experience maybe they'll play a little bit worse maybe they won't hit shots the way they did in the regular season you know maybe darren fox won't be quite as clutch as he was he's the nba's best clutch player in the regular season and those mid-rangers in isolation the end of the game won't fall this series to me dan is all about the golden state warriors if they play as well as they're capable of this won't be a close series it's just whether that will still be the case or not are they close to the same team they were last year. I think you're discounting Sacramento just a little bit. Just a little. I I generally agree with you. But the Kings have been really good this year. And I think they deserve a little more credit than that. Um... I mean, this this is a team that last year's Warriors team would wipe the floor with. I mean, what are the Kings like? You know, forty eight win team. Like the the fact that they're the three seed. Like this is they're probably more akin to like what the six seed would be in a normal Western Conference. And just the rest of the West wasn't that good. And, and I mean, this is they on paper they have absolutely no way to defend the Warriors. And so, and I think the the Warriors are going to score really well. And it's just a question of whether the Warriors can defend uh, at the level that they did last year when they had to me one of the better playoff defenses ever you know that to me is is the question i mean you, i mean you're welcome to disagree with me if you want to feel feel free to uh articulate why you feel that way i mean you make a you make a compelling argument i think the kings what they've done this year um uh, in a lot of ways looks like a good regular season team where it doesn't quite translate as well, doesn't tarnish their season anyway. Their season is already a rousing success. And in some ways they look like the team that doesn't translate quite as well to the playoffs. However, sometimes those teams look that way 
until they do translate to the playoffs. They play hard. They play at a high intensity level. Maybe this is to your point, but I think this is a a, a real test for the Warriors. The Warriors. Um, it's interesting you compared it to, to oh last year's Warriors would have would have been you know strongly favored against Sacramento. Are these last year's Warriors? Can they be last year's Warriors at this point in the year? Can they round the form to look like last year's Warriors? They can't just come into this series and take for granted we're the defending champs, we're the better team, we're going to cruise. It's going to take them uh, to to play the playoff basketball. Uh, that we've seen them do in the past uh, to focus in on what Sacramento does particularly offensively, uh, to be diligent in taking advantage of the Kings' uh, defensive shortcomings. And so may- maybe we're just saying the same thing in different words. When you say this about the Warriors, um, maybe that's kind of what I'm saying. When I when I say, I don't think the Warriors can just cruise through this series it, without uh, you know a high level of attention to detail and focus yeah but that's uh, of course what they uh, largely brought uh mm-hmm. in all their championship years aside from the odd blowout loss like the game five in memphis last season but i mean i just let's just go through some of the part of the reasons i just like hey if this is the warriors like they just have crazy matchup advantages they have easily the best player in the series with steph curry the kings have nobody to guard steph curry even on the perimeter not to mention that usually perimeter defense doesn't really matter on steph curry that much because it's really more about the bigs and your ability to switch the teams that have caused any problems at all for the warriors during their dynastic run have been teams that had great rim protection and were able to even if there was a backdoor even if there was a backcut teams that forced a lot of turnovers like that are able to erase plays at the rim right like boston they had their success last year when robert williams was in memphis was a team that caused them problems go back to the true dynasty days and it was okc that you caused them the most problems so and you know obviously you have to have defensive versatility as well i mean the kings have none of those things they're demonis Sabonis is a terrible rim protector he's got a little bit of mobility but you know he can't switch on to any of these guys and they don't have any kind of secondary rim protection behind Sabonis. like they just don't have the ability to make it difficult for golden state on the defensive end like they're just they just basically are gonna probably have to hope that golden state misses shots and they try to pack the pain and just say all right you guys want to take a ton of threes well maybe you'll be missing that day or we'll just fucking outscore you like that's that to me is their only hope i i just don't see anything else that they could do they could try to play davion mitchell but you know i don't know that he's had the most success against steph anyway and he's only one guy regardless you just set a screen with a guard and get steph another matchup like it's not hard so uh you know and i think offensively the warriors are, are pretty much right where they've been they they turn it over a lot they don't get a lot of offensive rebounds but they're one of the best e field goal percentage teams in the league they play at a high pace they get up a ton of threes they make a ton of threes like i, I think this warriors offense is very underrated by the numbers this season so i think really the battleground comes down to the warriors defense against the king's offense can they slow them down even a little bit if they can they win the series relatively easily there is no side of the court in these playoffs i'm more excited to see than when the kings have the ball against this warriors defense so Mm. i i really want to get deep into that but first let's just finish off what we're talking about when golden state has the ball i mean you know this team well what do you think how early and how aggressive are they going to be at 
targeting Sabonis, you know, targeting Sacramento's biggest weak spots. I mean, there's there's plenty throughout, but but the ones that they can really, really exploit, you know, we, I think Steve Kerr's gotten more aggressive with that, but I think that's something where over time where we've seen the Warriors don't rush into that. They like to play the way they want to play. They're mm. not going to mismatch hunt. And that's what I talk about when I say like their, their focus and how they're going to come at the series, uh, because I think the Kings are too good just to try and play how you'd want to play opponent agnostic right from the beginning i'd come out in the jump and be very aggressive with those things what do you think golden state will do yeah well andrew wiggins the thought is he's cleared but probably not going to start probably going to be in the 20 to 25 minute range just we have no idea what we're going to get from him and and if andrew wiggins weren't playing in this series to be clear i would consider this i probably would do you know warriors and seven it's going to be a crazy dogfight but uh i think with wiggins available and able to ramp up as minutes like he should be able to be good enough defensively that he can help them and all they really need him to do is just like hit some open shots in the offensive end uh so I, like having wiggins back is to me a huge x factor for them uh as far as the attacking you know i think you make a reasonable point that mike brown is a defensive coach he spent all this time with the warriors and he knows the, their offense really well and so yeah there, there is a randomness to that but hey maybe if you're the kings you can switch one through four and the warriors aren't going to run that much pick and roll at sabonis uh but you know i mean even if i think though my feeling is the warriors and steve kerr in particular i think the way he knows this team that they have been lackadaisical all year also the kings like game one is kind of the game to get in these series and that's what they did against memphis a year ago the the other series they didn't have home court in last year the arena is going to be crazy the ticket prices are through the roof there's going to be a lot of pressure at home on Sacramento. I think they're going to come out with their best shit in game one, set the tone, and just try to... Because you go down 1-0 in the series, you know, obviously that kind of changes things. Like to just... I think if they do go up 1-0, then... Because really, if you're the road team, like you really want to be up 3-1. Like you can win it if it's 2-2. But being up 3-1, like... So you got to get one of those first two and game one is kind of the one to get. So if it were me, and I think Steve will feel this too he needs to indicate the sense of urgency by going to the best stuff going to the mismatches and they particularly do that at the end of games so i, I even if the kings can guard their garden variety stuff which i'm not sure they can i, I think they yeah. will go to the best shit yeah i'm not sure the kings can either but uh the king's offense is so good if they're if the kings do so so at that that could be enough but maybe not because let's let's get into where like i think the real battle is it's when uh the kings have the ball king's offense has been awesome now this is a higher you you mentioned the highest raw offensive rating all time i I saw somebody uh claim recently like oh the king's offense is better than any the warriors had even with durant no it's a different league-wide environment you look at the relative offensive rating the warriors were were much better but the king's offense and also those uh those units were dominant in the playoffs you know so so we'll see and 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 you you noted this also in terms of this feeling of the kings being a little bit of a paper tiger is they had pristine health this year i mean what was Mm -hmm. the 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 stat just so we have it here on the regular season just based on our high quality matchup of like how often they had the advantage of the opponent in that stat yeah, so a high quality matchup for anybody didn't follow along as we tracked this dur- during the year is how many games were there uh, where both teams had their top two players, and I'm sure you've heard plenty about the Kings having uh, you know g- good health. They had 71 uh, games where Demontis Sabonis and Darren Fox were both available. Um, 
which was tied with the Magic for the most for their top two, their own team's top two being available. Uh, but Sacramento also was at the uh, second fewest games where the other team had its top two, at least one of them, unavailable. Uh, so in games, there were 32 games this year where Sacramento had its top two players and the other team did not. That plus 32 margin was by far most of the league. Next best was plus 24. Uh, yeah, that's uh, looking like it won't be the case against Golden State. So that's going to come back down to earth. Yeah, I think the, with the Warriors actually getting healthy at the right time, doesn't look like there are any injury issues for either team other than it, the Wiggins return. And so in Golden State, really all they're missing now that Gary Payton II is back off that great defense from last year, and you're missing Nemanja Bialica and Otto Porter. And Porter gave them a little bit of something, but you know I don't think he was like so much better for them than like Jonathan Kaminga would be for them defensively. This, but is, and now and they also bring in Dante Divincenzo. He's a, not a great on-ball guard. I think maybe he got a little overrated for that in, in Milwaukee, but you know certainly someone who's going to execute well, can fight a little bit in the post if needed, get over screens if you want to play it conventionally. No, he's like a reasonable option on on five and you know he'll it looks like he'll probably be in the starting lineup the other question will be are they going to go with Draymond and Kevon Looney together I probably would do that if I were them because like with against Jokic last year Draymond will be the guy I think guarding Sabonis at the end of the game and that and Draymond has always just completely flummox Sabonis when Sabonis tries to post up Looney Sabonis can lower his shoulder and get into him a little bit but it's still a pretty good matchup against Sabonis particularly because both those guys are pretty mobile as well because you got to be able to move uh yeah not only can Draymond guard Sabonis we could see him and I think we saw some in the regular season he can start possessions on Fox because Draymond can move his feet out there he he could do that it's not the absolute ideal matchup although it's it's not going to be ideal for Fox either. That that could uh, throw Fox for a loop. And then you can switch everything uh, very easily when, when they run the Fox bonus pick and roll. Yeah, we'll see if... I mean, I think you're probably more likely to see that with Wiggins on Fox, Draymond on Sabonis. I don't mm-hmm. know if they're they trust Looney on Fox. Maybe they'll try that a little bit. Looney, I think, has slowed down a little bit as a switch defender. Like they were willing to switch him on to Luca. They're willing to switch him on to Tatum. They were not willing to switch him on to John Morant. And Fox is kind of more like that kind of a player. Uh, I, I, yeah. I guess I'm I'm thinking when Draymond's at center is, is the time oh yeah to yeah unleash that yeah. yeah well yeah and that's and then you'd have Wiggins there and who hope that Wiggins can battle. Sabonis now the Kings do have a lot of shooting Sabonis probably can mash in the post against a a lot of guys now can Golden State make it tough to get the ball into him maybe so Uh, but Sabonis has the ball a a lot too and so that handoff game is going to be fascinating like is Golden State willing to switch that now if it's Draymond or Looney guarding Sabonis you know maybe you don't switch but they they're smart enough that okay if if one of the three-point shooters that they really fear you know that's probably Herder the most gets open then maybe Looney can switch out in that incident but if the guy gets through the screen then you can stay home I think pressure on Sabonis is going to be massive you know I talked to an assistant coach earlier this year whose team had just played Sabonis it was his scout and he said one of the things that we really wanted to do against Sabonis is make sure that he feels pressure 
at all times. And yeah, you might open up the back door a little bit if you do that, right? Because if you back off of him, then you can kind of, you know, you can go the top side route, not let the shooters come out, out of the corner. And then you, you have the whoever's guarding someone else back there to take away the back door. This coach said, you know, he's too good of a screener, right? Like he loves to flip the angle of the screen. He likes to kind of bounce the ball behind him. And then once he's gotten rid of the ball, it's kind of a handoff, but then he can take an extra step and screen. So you need to put pressure on Sabonis so he can't see the floor as well. Can't just kind of have that freedom to just leave the ball there and screen on those plays. So that would be something to watch very closely. Uh, I mean, I think the Kings offense, like I, I don't really know exactly what's going to happen here and whether how much the Warriors can or will switch. I think late clock you can, but early maybe you don't want to do that because then Sabonis getting into a mismatch, like he will kill mismatches. He will get on the offensive glass uh, if you if you don't have the right matchup on him. So I, I think that'll be like, it's going to take all of the Warriors collective defensive intelligence to mm-hmm. corral this Kings offense because they move a lot. They got a lot of shooting and, you know, Fox and Sabonis are maybe not guys you want to switch on. So it's that's what makes these guys so tough to defend. They're very good for a reason. That's exactly what I wanted to get into. I think uh, you picked Draymond Green in, in the end as your defensive player of the year too, right? Yes. Yeah, and I think we got there for similar reasons. The Warriors did not have a great defensive season overall. They were better with Draymond on, but it still wasn't as good as you would hope. But I, you know, look at uh, the rest of this defensive personnel wasn't so good. And the hope here for the Golden State is Andrew Wiggins changes the dynamic significantly, and I think he can. Uh, but I also credit Draymond Green for his incredible defensive communication, his ability to recognize what the opponent's doing and communicate it to its teammates. I think the Warriors punched above their weight, well above their weight, obviously, if I picked him as Defensive Player of the Year with him on the court. And you mentioned something like, okay, uh, you're, you're describing you know, how to handle a handoff, and you said... Um, you know, you got to kind of judge if if the uh, the guy guarding who's ever coming around the handoff sticks with his man, or or if not, you're gonna have to switch. Like that's a snap decision you're gonna have to make. Uh, mm-hmm. w- how you're handling that, and you're gonna have to talk about it, and you're gonna have to do it quick. And I've got I've got a lot of faith in Draymond Green's ability to not only make those decisions himself, uh, but to communicate to his teammates what to do to keep everybody on the same page. Uh, I think this is a, a great challenge for Draymond Green, an opportunity, though, also for him to show exactly what makes him a special defender. No, I, I think you're right. That's really true. And, you know, for Wiggins, having not played since February, getting from that, having to get into this maelstrom, expected to be one of the best defenders, you know, I think to see more maybe communication type of errors from him, maybe than you know, him just getting beat or something early on. And yeah, there are guys here. Kaminga's another one who, uh, Kaminga might be a guy you could switch him on to Sabonis. I don't know about that. I, I tend to, would tend to favor Sabonis. In that matchup, I I think Steve Kerr is going to have some interesting lineup decisions to make. That's going to be a part of this, too, of like, do they go, how much are they trying to outscore? Are they going to go Jordan Poole, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry? You're you're not stopping the Sacramento Kings if you go with that group, and you're just going to have to outscore them, which they very well could do, But by the way. But obviously, De'Aaron Fox, basically anyone on the Kings going at Jordan Poole or Poole trying to get through a screen on someone like Hurt. I mean, that's just going to be a complete disaster. Uh, And certainly Mike Braun, having coached Jordan Poole, is well aware of his shortcomings. So I think 
To me, this is going to be more of a Jordan Poole plays 18 minutes a game. He backs up Curry, backs up Thompson, but that's about it. And it's going to be a series for Gary Payton II, who will be a fascinating Mm -hmm. matchup against De'Aaron Fox. Uh, You know, the Warriors' ability to force turnovers and run might be huge in this series. And Jonathan Kaminga is going to be another key figure. The the Kings' uh, transition defense is not so terrible like their defense overall is bad but they're committed they do a good job of getting back like that's one of the things i pointed to when uh picking mike brown as my coach of the year like this is not good defensive personnel in sacramento um but but they get back in transition they find their guys like for a bad defense they're okay in transition maybe even good and you know for a bad defense and and if they were going against one of these teams like the raptors or memphis where they try to win the possession game they win the fast break game they're not really that great in the half court then i think the kings would feel pretty good but they're and and the kings they've kind of had a little bit of bad shot luck like their defensive shot profile like wasn't terrible you know it's one of these kind of control the things that you can control type of defenses but sacramento is 57th or, I'm sorry, they have 57% eat field goal percentage. That's 27th in the NBA on defense. And the Golden State Warriors, 57% effective field goal percentage. That's third in the NBA. And Golden mm-hmm. State actually finished with uh, the eighth best offensive rating in the league. Of course, the, the, that uh, blowout against uh, the Portland Trailblazers probably helped them when they put up a, a buck 57 at the end of the year. But so, it, uh, although the cleaning the glass does try to filter out garbage time, uh, any. That's the type of game even that single sectors. Yeah, I don't know if they just completely eliminated that game. That's probably what they should have done. Built throughout garbage time. In any event, but yeah, the things that Sacramento does, oh, we're going to, we'll really like clean up the defensive glass and we'll, uh, you know, they're sixth in defensive rebounding. And, you know, the, the, as I said, the defenses that cause Golden State problems are the ones that force turnovers and protect the rim and just have an overall high level of athleticism. And that is just not at, not all the Kings. You know, the, the Kings are like, oh, you know, we're pretty decent at not following. We're pretty good, decent at the defensive glass. Well, actually, you know, Golden State doesn't rely on any of those things. The reason <laughs> that Golden State wasn't the third best offense, despite having the third best effective field goal percentage, is their 29th in turnover percentage and their 29th in getting the line. So it's not like the Kings are going to like, you know, it's not like they're going to take away that strength of golden state but golden state plays into their offensive strengths against uh, the defensive weakness of sacramento and you know again as we you just you go through i mean there's just the matchups are awful there's just nothing that i can think of schematically that they could do maybe they'll just go to like some crazy zone and just or, or a box in one just try to like throw them off but they just don't have the personnel at all well it I'm curious what Mike Brown's going going to do, right? Like you said, he knows the Warriors. He knows Steve Kerr. I'm with you. I, I struggled to find uh, options myself, but just because I can't find them, uh, Mike Brown might. And, uh, you know, that that's part of my curiosity of this series. Now, Another this thing I'm noting. Cu- oh, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no I, well, I, I just, I, this, is more, this is more macro, so, so you take it. Mine too. So I, I was I want to talk about the home road, uh, but if you got something that leads in, yeah, better. no, no, no. What do you got there? I don't know. I mean, the Warriors have been really bad on the road. The Kings crowd is going to be awesome. It has been an awesome fan base throughout these miserable years, and now it's at fever pitch. Do you put it? The, the Warriors obviously had some bad shooting luck when they've been on the road. I don't think that's been the whole story. They've they've been just weirdly terrible on the road. Historically bad on the road for a team this good. Do you make anything of that? Yeah, I do make something of it. Not necessarily the home road split, but just their overall inconsistency this year. Now, 
the reason I've never fully given up on this Golden State team is all of their individual players have had moments this year where they've played very well, just about. And Clay Thompson made the most threes of his career this year. Steph Curry was my MVP through a month and a half of the season. Draymond Green was my pick for defensive player of the year. And then they're as deep, if not deeper, than they've been. Like, DiVincenzo has been a nice piece. Like, Kaminga has given them some athleticism and individual defense. And obviously, Wiggins hasn't been seen in a long time, but he had moments where he's playing well this year. So it seems like they're kind of putting it all together now. But I think it just speaks to their inconsistency inconsistency it speaks to the variance in this series even if i think golden state playing at their best should mop the floor with this sacramento whoa so a lot of times we talk about teams like the warriors or the lakers and we talk about like hey look how good they are when their stars are healthy and playing well and what that's saying in not so many words is yeah those guys are old and sometimes they can put it together through a playoff series or even a long playoff run sometimes they can't like some i think i think overall we discount uh, the effects of aging and when, when we try and talk about it as hey they sometimes they look great uh are, are they going to keep it up through a, a playoff series are they going to look worn down at times i mean the you know you you said early on about struggling to find ways for the kings to put pressure on the warriors and i agree in a schematic way but they can also put pressure on the warriors by just playing really really darn hard all the time which they do yep and and the warriors uh, will have to match that uh, to be sure and uh, deal with their transition game like that's in particular the warriors will you know not get back on makes you know that, that kind of thing they're certainly prone to that they're prone to many a lapse uh and but i i just ultimately that's why like i absolutely think the sacramento kings could win this series like absolutely it's just i'm not ready to when steph clay and draymond have made it to the nba finals every single season they've been together since 2015 and yeah i know they've had this rough regular season like they haven't had a regular season like this and even even the when all their guys were available as you looked at in the rotational data and adjusting for playoff rotations if they didn't have the type of net rating that they had in previous years and maybe that says something but again i think just looking at the individual players here like the the matchup advantages are just too big for golden state to me i mean they they just have even if you want to just like rank the players in the series like their players are way better like golden state will just have to and like they're healthy enough I think at this point in time, they started playing a little better, admittedly, against some taking teams, but they at least blew those teams out. Uh, Maybe Sacramento knew something when they decided to tank their (laughs) last game of the season against Golden State and set up this matchup, essentially. So maybe, maybe, and the last thing I'll say before I make my official prediction, I couldn't really think of a time when Golden State played a team of this type of profile. Like, this may be, other than... The Cavs and LeBron James, yeah. the best offense Golden State has faced in this entire run. Now, and now, of course, it's probably the worst defense that Golden State has faced in this entire run as well. But it's you just there isn't as much of a profile to fall back on of like, oh yeah, we've seen the Warriors go up against a team like this; they handle them easily. So there is that that level of uncertainty there as well that maybe just the Sacramento offense is just that fucking good, and maybe well, they I, just out they shoot the ball so well they just outshoot Golden State and just beat them. What about the Rockets they, once they yeah. went to uh, Westbrook as as their de facto center? Well, they never played uh, those Rockets. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean they look differently, but the uh, like the you know the the Rockets, I guess, would be 
the yeah, next and the Rockets they the play, they played into they didn't move the ball right like they played into right. Golden State's hands like they haven't played against right. a team that is kind of like them <laughs> frankly uh, yeah so, uh, but but I mean I, I'm gonna go with the Derek Ure Golden State in six I if Golden State had home court I might have considered it in five instead it, but I mean I think it's the Kings are also even this season if you look solely at the data from this season like the Kings aren't that much better than the yeah i also have warriors especially when you consider the health yeah 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 a little little tidbit for anybody ever picking series i looked at this a few years ago i can't imagine it's changed too much uh when the team with home court advantage wins it's pretty pretty evenly distributed between them winning in four or five six or seven but when the team without home court advantage wins the series it's usually in six so it's hard for me to imagine too many times where i'd pick the uh team without home court advantage in anything but six no, I think that's fair. I usually zero in on that as well. And yeah, I mean, that's why Tom Thibodeau losing in five so many times <laughs> with home court advantage is notable. I, there are not many series like that in the last 20 years that come to mind for me. And yeah, what is what is the, I mean, I, I'm guessing actually probably the road team, the second most likely would be four. Hmm. Um, you know, I don't remember. And I obviously don't have he, that I mean, uh, handy, but uh, yeah. you know, maybe in uh, Monday's I, I mean, that's just my guess, that yeah. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. I'll I'll look. I can easily look that up, and I'm curious now too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that pick. Which series you want to go to? I mean, obviously, we're going to leave Philly, Brooklyn to last, so that leaves us with Atlanta and Boston. (laughs) Are we going to be able to maintain anywhere? I am so excited for that Warriors King series. I know I said I was most excited for that the side of the ball in the in any series when Sacramento has the ball. Um, But as we talk through it, I mean, I, I think I'm by far most excited for that series. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, now the later series will be pretty. I mean, sure. there, there's going to be some some pretty good series. I think even like if it, if it ends up being Minnesota Denver, I would be pretty interested in that. I mean, I don't know. Sure. I, I might actually be more excited for Lakers Grizz. Okay, that, that one is up there for me too. But just because yeah. I that's that I think that one is actually the closest matchup on the board. Let's uh, let's get to this Boston Atlanta and Atlanta look great. They dominated uh, on the offensive glass. One of the best offensive rebounding games of the season relative to opponent. They've been hitting the offensive glass a lot since Quinn Snyder took over. Their offense has been really good since Quinn Snyder took over. And I think the side of the ball that's really going to determine this series is Atlanta going against Boston's defense. And you know, Trey Young has had some good games over the years against Boston and Boston has really never done like a blitz type of of defense against Trey and so I I am interested to see what they're going to go to here um I think I would really try some interesting stuff if I'm Joe Missoula in terms of kind of hiding out some of my bigs on guys who are not the primary pick and roll player uh you know I think that could be really really interesting to try so you can do some switching against Trey uh you know they also have smart and white are pretty good guys getting over screens and you know I think DeJounte Murray is set up to have a pretty rough series like they're like what he likes to do is kind of if he has a little bit of a quickness advantage or a little little bit of a size advantage he likes to get in the lane pop up for a mid-ranger that's kind of his primary mo and there isn't really anyone that he is going to have a big physical advantage against in this series one-on-one so i I think that i don't expect him to have a great series they're going to make him shoot from the outside a lot what sticks out when Atlanta has the ball to you? I'm just curious more about your idea of, of uh, Boston putting a big on somebody who's not going to be 
setting, you know, so basically saying put a big on uh, somebody other than John Collins and Clint Capella uh, so that you can have somebody more capable of switching on to Trey Young when they run those pick and rolls. Um, the downsides of that seem pretty glaring to me, but I'm just curious more what you're thinking there. Um, you, so one, you're going to have a a, a big on somebody who's going to have, have trouble getting around, you know, the big's going to have to get around screens. Even if it's DeAndre Hunter, it's probably even going to be more difficult if it's Bogdanovich Uh, or Hunter and then Collins. Yeah. Hunter or Collins. Bay is probably too good of a shooter or Bogdan obviously is too good of a shooter, but like Hunter is probably going to hang out towards the baseline. They'll also do that kind of pseudo zone where they have Robert Williams hanging out. Uh, towards the towards the baseline as well um, yeah yeah I, i'm interested to know how they're going to defend with uh with al horford in pick and roll like that'll be interesting they're gonna switch al horford onto trey young like eh, maybe maybe they would try that I, I could see them maybe doing that especially if you got robert williams behind them like that's something i think they might they might consider doing um but al yeah. can also he can execute more aggressive pick and roll coverage if they want to do that he can be more in a drop coverage they want to do that like, he's got a lot of versatility yeah i mean he could he could be up at the level um i mean you could dare trey young to beat you with floaters and he might but if he's not getting his teammates involved maybe that's okay yeah i i just feel like uh you know, a risk if you get too creative. The other thing I was going to say is the offensive rebounding. The Celtics have been a very good off, uh, good defensive rebounding team. N- number one in the NBA, in fact, yeah. which is something that was a bugaboo for them for a long time. They've gotten a lot better at that. Um, but that's in part because I don't think they've necessarily done those super creative things to get their their big side position like way too often but it's also in part uh because you know uh their their guards can rebound their their wings can can get in and rebound um so they, they can get help on the glass there i i just yeah when when atlanta has the ball obviously this can be trey young heavy and i think the celtics have the ability to handle that the defensive versatility to handle that and one thing trey young did well in the the play-in game i thought he was quick to give it up as as soon as uh the the defense tilted too far his way but i also think uh the Celtics again. It's just too high of defensive quality. All five players on the floor. I'm just struggling to see where there's going to be vulnerabilities. Yeah, I, I mean there isn't that guy to attack. So it's just if they're in a conventional pick and roll defense, can Trey work his magic? Or they do have the personnel p- potentially to switch. Now, if Robert Williams isn't able to play that much, or he's not as effective, just to, due to all the injuries that he always struggles with, and Horford, you know, we'll see what how many minutes he, he can play. How spry he's feeling. You know, he's He's another year older. So if they got to dig into, you know, the Cornet, the Blake Griffin tier of centers, that could be a problem. Another interesting one would be you know, Grant Williams, better defensively against kind of bigger guys. He might be able to stay with DeJounte Murray okay. I don't think mm-hmm. he could stay with Trey. So that him switching might not be that amazing. Maybe maybe he's not going to have a, a great series, a kind of similar fashion to what took place in the finals last year, whereas against Milwaukee and Brooklyn, it, he was much more valuable. Uh, another interesting thing, the Hawks, one of their biggest strengths offensively number four in avoiding turnovers that is the Mm -hmm. only thing that they were top five in as an offense this year but boston you can kind of see this two ways boston was the number three defense without forcing any turnovers themselves so they're not really relying 
unforcing turnovers. And so uh, now you might say, hey, you know what? They can still stop them anyway. You know, they're the number three e field goal percentage defense and they clean up the defensive glass and they don't foul at all. You know, that'll be huge, obviously, with the Trey getting to the foul line. But nobody else on Atlanta really does other than maybe Capella. But that's, you know, that's not the end of the world. He's just getting offensive rebounds and making 50% of them if he does get them. So, yeah, I think this is, uh, it could go one of two ways. You'd be like, hey, like, Atlanta will have some baseline level of competence because like they're just going to never turn it over so they'll at least get a shot up every time but I, I think it's more likely like no actually Boston has proven that they can stop teams without having to turn them over and so that will not end up being a, a huge factor but the, the bigger problem anything else you want to talk about on the the defensive end for, for yeah, I mean, Boston I mean, because I, I think they they match up pretty well I think with most yeah. offenses and and particularly like you know this is a series where no, you can't win the series unless Trey Young is the best player in the series as Atlanta, and I don't think that's going to be the case. Just to put a bow on what you're talking about with the turnovers, I, I, you know, we saw last year what it looks like when Atlanta's offense really gets suffocated by the Heat. I think the Celtics' defense is, is excellent, and I just it's not going to look the same. Like I think the no, Celtics' it won't. It de- won't. defense is, is going to control this, but it's going to look very different. And I, I thought that was well put. The, the The Hawks can have a baseline level of competency. They're not going to look like completely overwhelmed because the Celtics don't apply pressure in the same ways. Uh, but they're not going to find creases and openings to do anything spectacular either. Yeah. Now you might say that Boston, like the way to beat Trey Young, is with pressure and length and intensity. I mean, we've seen that as being one way, uh, but th- that's not really Boston. And so Trey is like such a clinician that if you're not pressuring him, other than you know maybe Smart will try it, but it, he hasn't been the same this year. Yeah, that's probably one thing that you look at. It, he and Rob Williams haven't been quite the same guys this year as they were last year, and that's why Boston's defense wasn't like absolutely dominant the way it was the second half of last year but and they brought in brogdon too who's not you know a great defensive player he's got a little bit of size but he's not uh not in the level of smarter white of course so maybe you could say hey trey can really just kind of like pick them apart and they'll have to get out of their comfort zone but they'll also still have robert williams on the back line i think and you know this hawk's often or the Hawks defense as we switch to that end of the floor they're not good enough to me to where Boston be like ah we got to take Robert Williams off the floor we got to go five out here and spread the floor like I think Boston should be able to score reasonably well against Atlanta even if they keep Rob Williams on them as do I I mean uh I don't think uh I think like most teams, the Hawks, the Hawks probably have more wings than than a typical team, uh, but a good enough defensive wings to keep up with both Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown is going to be difficult. I mean, DeAndre Hunter is going to lead that, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe Bogdanovich and Sadiq Bay can step up. I don't know how much you trust yeah. AJ. I, I think those guys are those guys are, are not going to cut it against Jalen Brown, right. or, or potentially Tatum when Hunter is on the bench, and even Hunter is not like some great matchup particularly because atlanta is probably going to be in kind of a drop coverage you would think i don't think they're going to get capella way up at the level maybe if they do it could be interesting but boston has improved their their shooting and driving and quick decision making this season and so yeah what are they going to do against tatum and, and any kind of pick and rolls for him uh he should be able to just shoot that three off the dribble he and Braun haven't hit like at an unbelievable rate but the support players have and so I think, yeah, they just don't have, like Jason Tatum, I think if you get the right matchup against him, you can switch like Golden State. He's not going to be able to beat like the absolute best guys. Atlanta doesn't have anyone like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, the other like, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say it's like similar to, to on defense uh, where 
you know, is this like an awful matchup for the Hawks? No, but they're just not as good. All right, well, time to make our picks. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, any other matchups that kind of stick out to you uh, on that Hawks defense or any big strategic conundrums for Quinn Snyder? I mean, just generally, the Celtics have been overall an excellent three-point shooting team. Uh, The Hawks have not. It's probably been a little bit better since, I mean, it's definitely been better since they've gotten Sadiq Bey, but John Collins hasn't shot well this year. Uh, They're usually playing a non-shooting center. DeJounte Murray is not a a great shooter for his position. Uh, Trey Young's percentage Mm -hmm. hasn't been as good as I think he is shooting ability. Um, Of all the things we already talked about for Atlanta to overcome, if if they're just at such a disadvantage from the three-point arc, it's just going to be really hard to keep up and they've gotten better there since Quinn Snyder came in and they've been hitting the offensive glass but they're not going to have the John Collins matched up against kind of a combo forward advantage like it'll probably be Williams and Horford to start games for Boston and so they don't really have that matchup advantage then Snyder he'll have to decide is it going to be Collins is he going to get the Keith Bogans he going to play 22 minutes a game are they Collins actually maybe he could guard Jason Tatum a little bit but I don't know about and maybe Maybe they could try switching Capella like he did that in Houston, but that was a while ago. He doesn't quite have the same quickness to me anymore. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, again, if you're getting lit up, I might consider that, but I wouldn't necessarily expect that to work. But there's not a lot of other stuff I expect to work either in this series. So, Snyder, he'll have to make some decisions about, is he going to go with Bogdan at the three? Is he going to play Bay? Some at the four, as well as he's going to try to play Bay and Hunter together and have them guard Braun and Tatum. All right, well, if you do that, then, and Boston's still playing the two bigs, then you got a size mismatch. Uh, so, if and obviously Missoula will have his own questions who does he close with like they seem to have soured on Grant Williams in the closing lineup maybe so now it's it'll be White and Smart and Tatum Brown and Horford that's probably what you end up with White's been amazing this year I think they'll also have to keep an eye on whether Marcus Smart should be in the closing lineup I don't think Atlanta is the team that's going to really put them to a hard decision on that because I don't expect the series to be that close but White has outplayed Smart this year is that but Smart is there beating hard or whatever so that's something that we'll we'll have to keep an eye on also i think i'm ready to make my prediction here but you are to go first celtics and five uh, much much closer to celtics and four than celtics and six yeah i was i'm gonna go celtics and five too but i would say i think atlanta just has enough talent to make this semi-interesting and i do think that trey does have the ability to possibly go off at times against this team uh now i mean we didn't even talk about the whole like having to hide trey tatum and Braun going at him thing like that's that's an ever-present issue as well particularly at the end of game and mm-hmm. so can missoula get more creative there than all right call this man up for a, a screen they should probably look actually at the film of what miami's done with you know, setting screens with trey's man to try to get guys open under the basket that sort of thing as well but that's always an omnipresent issue for atlanta and you know could Dejounte murray guard jalen brown yeah, maybe but i don't know if he quite has the strength to do that same thing with tatum who could shoot over him so i i'm yeah i still just don't love the matchups they're like this isn't a i thought miami the, the more we talked about it, yes i did 
pick Miami, but I thought this would be a, a game the Hawks would win. Like that, I think, was a pretty good matchup for Atlanta. As much as they got killed a year ago, they had a different team. And yeah, like Atlanta's talent's not bad. Like that, I think the other thing you can point to is neither of these teams have just like guys who are just terrible in their rotation. The only thing that's really going to get picked at is Trey on defense, but obviously he's a good player. So I think to that extent, it's not like the Hawks are just like, oh man, we have, we're just like not a playoff team. We're going to get completely overwhelmed. It's just that the guys that have to play those playoff type of roles just aren't quite at the level of Boston's guys. So I, I would lean more towards six, but I think five feels right also. 76ers Nets. Yeah, we really, it's tough to get a feel for this Nets team. The hope that I had for them was that they could be a really good defensive team and cobble together just enough offense. Instead, that defense didn't work out. They had some negative shooting luck, but they also just weren't quite as able to protect the rim, deny penetration as you thought they might with their perimeter athleticism. And so that that's just as a general proposition but the number one thing that shows up here is just they have nobody to deal with Joel Embiid whatsoever physically yeah Nick Claxton's made a lot of progress overall as a player as a defender um but this is not a, a good matchup for him I'm expecting the Nets to double team a lot and as you mentioned their defense uh since their trades has not been as good as you would have hoped from the personnel and I think it's gonna be a big challenge of staying connected enough as, as you're double teaming your defense is going to be scrambling um you know i i I get i think inviting that level of chaos is the right move as a you know strong underdog but it's tough to see it working out i think there's two things they could try against Embiid, and one of them that came to mind is and they don't have quite the personnel to do this but cleveland had a game where they had success against philly this year with evan mobley and jared allen it would be normally who they have but instead allen was out so I think they actually put Mobley on Embiid and they started Mamai Diakite, who's just, if you're not familiar with him, just kind of a, a long, skinny guy in his own right. And just having that level of length to try to front in the post, try to get good contests without fouling. So the thing that I would probably try is, Joel, we're going to make you post up. We're not mm-hmm. going to let you get that pick and roll run to the rim, right? Like I would even say... Let's throw Mikhail Bridges, another skinny guy, unfortunately, on Harden. And let's throw Dorian Finney-Smith on Joel Embiid. And he's going to just try to front him. He's going to try to do everything. And Nick Claxton, you're going to guard P.J. Tucker or you'll guard whoever else it is. I don't care who the hell their four-man is. It's Harris. I mean, maybe Niang would be the one guy where you're like, okay, maybe this isn't going to work, but I can hopefully go after him on the other end. But that would be my approach. I don't want Nick Claxton guarding Joel Embiid. He's the only guy who can do anything protecting the rim. I want him there in help defense if Joel drives. And so my instructions is we're going to switch every pick and roll with Harden and Embiid and you just work tirelessly try to outwork him make every catch really tough like we're not going to let him get that pocket pass with the head of steam we want him to catch the ball stationary all right if he puts the ball on the floor he gets by you that's okay don't foul Nick Claxton will be there waiting and we're gonna uh, Joel he's become a better passer but he's not really a great passer on the move once he's really started as particularly from the top once he starts to get into the paint head down I don't know if he's going to carve you up at that point he'll carve you up more if you send the double team when he's got two hands on the ball waiting to make his move so that i think would be my approach but also a rather desperate one in the end you know we won't dwell on this but you know who'd be really good uh on the nets roster for for that secondary lengthy defender role 
Ben Simmons. Okay. Uh, I also am more, in reality, I'm more concerned um, than you are if you try that. And uh, I think that fits the, what I was talking about, double teaming of like, yeah, desperate times, desperate measures. I mean, I'm concerned. Yeah, no, no. I'm concerned. It's it's not going to work. But that's the best you can do, I think. I'm more concerned about, uh, than you are, of doing it with Tobias Harris at the four. Like, I think he could really punish that too. Fine, fine. If Tobias Harris wants to take 15 three-pointers, go fucking ahead. If that if that's how we're going to lose, I'm okay with that. You could also put the ball on the floor with with room to gain ahead of steam and your defense is tilted and fine. And, fine. Let them okay. score 35 points. That's huh. you're at least making them not do the first thing that they want to do. Like like all right, if he proves Maybe. To me that he can <laughs> do that, then if he proves to me that he can do that, then I'll try to find something else. Here's the problem with both of these strategies that we've talked about. Joel Embiid still might flourish himself with these. These are not guaranteed to stop Embiid. No, no, not at all. I mean, but the biggest thing that they have to do is they got to not foul. I I mean, obviously easier said than done. I think with Harden, it is possible to do it at this point in time. Like your goal, if you're going to play more of a conventional pick and roll style against Harden, is we're going to make him finish from two-point range out of the pick and roll. We're not going to let him get that pocket pass to Embiid and we're not going to follow him we're going to force him to shoot a floater we're forcing him to shoot a layup where his contested finishing is around 50 percent not very good uh and you know sure you'd love to make him go right a little bit because he's, he's not as good passing right to left as left to right but uh he, he still is obviously a, a very good player and Tyrese Maxey is kind of another guy who is a real x factor on this team and so they cannot give up transition to him either now this Nets team doesn't ever get any offensive rebounds anyway so they should be able to get back and philly is not like a huge turnover forcing team either and the nets you know i don't think they have a ton of high turnover guys either because you know when you don't ever pass it it's tough <laughs> to turn it over in the case of mikhail bridges but that's i i think hopefully they can keep philly out of transition because when they add that transition element for maxi flying in the right wing or taking a deep pull up three that's when philly is just completely impossible to deal with they played a slow pace overall but like for example they killed Toronto in transition in most of the games in that series last year. So that's something that obviously you have to take away as well. I mean, you just like Philly's going to score it. Just you can't just give them like they're not going to offensive rebound, though. So that's at least where they're not going to hurt the Nets. Probably like that's that's good, at least. So, you know, it's maybe it's possible. I, I Jack Vaughn isn't exactly like a proven playoff coach. Like if it were some other coach, maybe I would consider Brooklyn a little bit more of a threat in this series. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I expect Philly to score pretty well, maybe not at an elite level, but, you know, pretty darn well. What chance does Brooklyn have at keeping up with them on the other? Probably not a great chance. Um, you know, it's obviously helpful. Uh, Mikel Bridges' ascension since being in Brooklyn, he showed some flashes in Phoenix. Um But, you know, this, this is what you need in the playoffs is, is somebody who can be uh, someone who can create for himself and score for, you know, create scoring opportunities for himself. He's, be, he's become that player. Whether it's going to translate to the playoffs against a good defense, not sure. We'll see. That's that's going to be an interesting test for, for me to, to see. Um, you know, Bridges... Bridges is a young player. He's got room to get better. It's impressive what he's done in the regular season. This might be a, a learning opportunity for him, or it might be a moment he he breaks out even further. Yeah, and there isn't... Philly doesn't have the sort of defenders who are going to put a ton of pressure on you, and presumably they'll try to involve Harden defensively in a lot of actions. They'll try to involve Maxi defensively in a lot of actions. I think they honestly should 
should probably go after Maxi more than they go after Harden even. Because Harden, at least, like, he'll contain, he's strong. Like, Maxi, you could just go right through him, basically mm-hmm. anyone. Uh, so I think how Philly's going to match up would be interesting. I mean, Dinwiddie and Bridges are obviously the two guys that you're really worried about mm-hmm. from Brooklyn's standpoint. And for Philly, their starting lineup, if they start Maxi, which it seems they've decided they're going to do, I mean, you're, I guess you're going Tobias Harris on Bridges and or or PJ Tucker and then who is going to guard Spencer Dinwiddie and you know Joel is going to be in a drop coverage Dinwiddie isn't going to have some just like shark of a defender on him unless they go to DeAnthony Melton so like Dinwiddie should be able to get a screen get open from three-point range like maybe he can get hot there maybe Bridges uh, his offensive movement in the half court like there's no one who's going to really chase him around again you can set screens for him Joel is going to be back for uh, most of the way now the problem for Brooklyn is they're going to get absolutely nothing at the rim this whole series when Embiid is in the game like and that's that's going to make the math problem pretty difficult for them like I think they got decent shooting like they've got guys who can get shots from the mid-range and they've got a few guys who can shoot the three off the dribble but when you're not getting anything at the rim and you're not getting to the foul line in all likelihood yeah maybe Dinwiddie and Bridges can do that a little bit but they're probably not going to get to the foul line a ton it's just going to be really hard to make the numbers add up well enough against the Philly offense that's probably going to score pretty well and that does kind of pass the math test much better I don't think the Nets are going to stress the 76ers enough for this to be a huge issue, but I, I think there could be some foreshadowing, and I'm curious uh, where Doc Rivers sides on some of his offense or defensive personnel choices, you know, the degree to which he goes with Maxi versus Melton, or uses P.J. Tucker or somebody more skilled offensively at the four. Um, just, just curious if we get some early signs of which way he's leaning uh, heading into likely a tighter matchup in the second round. Uh, also curious uh, if the 76ers can do anything not to get destroyed when Joel Embiid sets. Yeah, I mean, this Titanic backup center matchup between Paul Reed and Dayron Sharp it should be a focus. <laughs> I mean, I, if I'm Brooklyn, I, I'm playing Sharp all his minutes against Embiid. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I realize that he's the only guy that has any kind of half, but like he's he'll he's just going to follow him immediately. Sure. And particularly because he's going to come in at a time when they're probably already in the bonus. It just it seems like you just you just double team. Hopefully you can just have him mostly matched up against me. But I would I wouldn't even go with Sharp probably. I would say we'll throw in Watanabe at backup center, if, especially if they're going with Paul Reed. We're, we'll try to switch everything against Harden. We're going to make Harden beat us on that that second unit one-on-one like let's let's make sure that we have our best most versatile defensive switching lineups out there when actually Embiid is off the floor because you might think hey we're never going to stop and beat anyway yeah so and so may i probably would take claxton off the floor but i mean you could get real everybody else yeah you get real crazy and start sharp because if you're going to play him, maybe those when you're not in the bonus at the beginning of halves, maybe that's the yeah, time to get him as minutes. Not start. They're not going to not start Claxton. That's but but Sharp will get plenty of time when Claxton gets two fouls three minutes. <laughs> and then, like you said, because yeah. now you're headed toward the bonus, uh, you're going to have more problems with Sharp. You have anything so, else on this? So one? I mean, yeah. Well, you know, Brooklyn they do have in theory good defensive personnel, mm-hmm. and it, no, maybe they just are going to decide we just don't have enough here because. Because, and we got to get guys like Patty Mills or Cam Thomas out there. Joe Harris, we'll see what, what his ability to contribute is, whether it's Sharp or once. They might also just go for the Sharp, you know, try to, who had like 
the highest offensive rebounding rate basically in NBA history this year. Like, let him just try to knock some heads in the offensive glass on that second unit um, where Philly has not been a great defensive rebounding team at times. But, like, Jock Vaughn, if he can slow down, like, they have some pieces. They don't necessarily have the pieces. You know, there's no Marc Gasol guarding and beat in the post here. But they have versatile pieces. They should have guys who have some athleticism, can fly around out of double teams, and they do have clocks on the back line if they can deploy him properly. Like, I'm not sure what the way is. And I think that Jock Vaughn should be very aggressive in trying a lot of different stuff. But there are a lot of different things you can try, at least, with this group. So I think I'm going to go in a little different direction here, unless you have anything else. I can, it's my turn for the prediction. Well, I was just going to say, I, I'd be more eager to see if this Nets defensive personnel with a lot of pieces that we like could put together against, say, the Celtics. Uh, yeah. You yeah. know, that that would be like, OK, you you if it comes together, which it hasn't, and I don't expect it to like then they could do something. I just think it's a uh, a tough matchup for Brooklyn's theoretical defense, let alone actual defense. Well, I think they're actually in decent shape against everyone except Embiid now. Embiid well, with the MVP like those. It's, it, it, it's easy to say that, of course. But like Harden, I don't know. See, I mean, I, I think it really to me is would be about we're going to make James Harden just have a terrible series. Like, I think they have the pieces to do that. And I think if they again, and I mean, the two things I'm going to take away is we're not going to let James Harden play conventional pick and roll offense. And we're not going to let Joel and B catch the ball in the pocket going downhill. We're going to switch that. I don't care how much of a mismatch we're in outside of that, but we are going to, we're going to pressure the ball as well. Like that's big. If you're going to switch, like do not let the, like run off another three, four seconds as they bring it up. Like James Harden doesn't want to like bring the ball up against pressure. Yeah. So try to tire him out a little bit. Like Embiid can be prone to fatiguing by the end of series, but I'm just going to say, Hey, yeah, we, we realize we're at a disadvantage. We're at a disadvantage no matter who the matchup is on Embiid. So we're not going to let you get like the team based stuff. At least like we're going to make you actually beat someone every time. And then once you do that, we're going to bring help and let's see if your ball movement is good enough to play out of that. Uh, as opposed to just letting them play conventional pick and roll ball and let him be, get the ball going downhill. And then you're completely dead. Uh, let him get an open shot at the foul line as you're trying to recover back to him. Um, so it is my turn to pick. I am actually going to go with the Brooklyn Nets taking this one to six games against Philly. Obviously, Philly will be my pick here, but I, I think they're just weird enough to make it interesting. I'm going to uh, cut where you were out where you said, uh, I'm going to go with the Brooklyn Nets and just leave it right there and cut out the part you said to take it to six. I'm going to post that on Twitter. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to take the, uh, the 76ers in five. Um, the Nets could make it interesting. It? Yeah. I just don't have enough confidence in this matchup that they're going to. Yeah, there's also this Philly team just hasn't been that dominant in the postseason. Now they've done it in first round series at times. Right. But I I think they're they're also prone to lapses. They're prone to not getting back. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they're like it's not a team that you love them being overconfident going into a series, which I think they probably will be. So yeah, I, I mean, if I had to pick, is it more likely to go five or seven? Obviously, I would pick five. But yeah, I, I think this is one. And when I make these picks. I do, if I feel like my perspective is a little bit different from the conventional wisdom, I like my pick to reflect that, even though I'm like right on the borderline between five and six, I'll, I'll go with, with six just to kind of represent that I, I think there could be a little bit more here than some people are expecting. Perfect intro to the one other thing I want to talk about. Uh, right. We predicted, we both predicted that the Thunder 
would beat the Timberwolves. And now comes news that Joel Embiid is questionable, or excuse me, not Joel Embiid, uh, Rudy Gobert is questionable for this game. I uh, still have these back issues. If Gobert doesn't play, would that change your pick? Oh, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. The The fact that you had to think about it so long says something about the state of Rudy Gobert and the Timberwolves. Well, I think also if he does play, he doesn't sound like he's 100% right now. Yeah. And and he ha- he's had been dealing with a lot of stuff down the end of the year. And so... You know, <laughs> Most notably Kyle Anderson calling him a bitch. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he's obviously going to be very motivated to come out and play well. Like, it, it, if they lose to the 10 seed and he plays poorly after this huge egg that he dropped in on Sunday, that's that'd be pretty bad. So, I, I think he's going to be extremely motivated. We'll see whether that, that makes much of a difference or not. All right, Dan, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm going to do a little solo segment here on the Hoop Summit. Neither Dan nor Danny were able to join me this week for that. So uh, I'm just going to do it solo. But I was there. I saw all these guys. I took some notes. And, you know, it's not like we we have enough content here. So I might as well do another segment. For those who don't know, the Hoop Summit is just a fantastic scouting event. My favorite scouting event that there is. And the reason for that is it's USA versus the world. It hasn't been as much of a battle of opposites as it was maybe 10 years ago when you had guys coming in from overseas more often like you had guys like Dante Exum just show up as a a relative unknown and really burst onto the scene or and you had Nikola Jokic coming over from Serbia and Clint Capella guys who actually were based in Europe coming over that was only one guy who did that it's a really interesting prospect uh, Zachary Risache who I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more but what makes it interesting is you just get a full week of practice like real practices and we get get into the practices as the media they'll they scrimmage against the team that i christened the portland generals who are coached by a, a local coach there are guys who are playing college ball at washington and you know, really good local high school players who are like just maybe missed the cut both from seattle and portland come down like the portland generals like Jaden mcdaniels and kpj have played on that peyton pritchard played on them for a couple of years and then he was actually on the hoop summit team his senior year steve blake even who was a portland guy just like came in and played for them one year like after you just retired so it's a really actually like good competition in these scrimmages the for this year for the first time the world team actually played against them as well the world team unfortunately now is just kind of more u.s based guys like now part of that is because more guys are just coming over during their high school years there aren't as many internationally based guys part of it is due to covid part of it is due to the sneaker politics of it being the nike hoop summit but the usa team they actually try to make a team they pick guys who've been in the team usa pipeline for a while but basically i, I was told when i talked to the true draft Knicks that just about everyone you would hope to have except matas buzelis who i, I think is how you pronounce it his name who's going to be on g league ignite next year that's who gavoni has number one but basically everyone else who is in gavoni's top 10 other than guys who were based overseas aside from uh Risache, were there it was really exciting to see that and of course everyone was really interested in Bronny james Bronny james not considered a top 10 u.s recruit at this point in time gavoni actually had him in his top 10 for the 24 draft part of that is an indication of the relative weakness of this class i didn't think that 
like these guys were bad. The bigs were bad, but there are a lot of like pretty intriguing wings and guards for either of the teams, but nobody who looks like the type of guy who's uh, on the level of some of the number one overall picks in previous years. But we've seen guys emerge to be really interesting. And of course, even if the top five, the top 10 isn't as exciting, we've seen your Giannis Antetokounmpo's, your Rudy Gobert's blow up picked later in the draft. So we just, we don't know who those guys are necessarily going to be. They're always sleepers like that. So, but back to Bronny, Gavoni has a number 10. I I think he's going to be an NBA player. He definitely has NBA athletic at 6'4", like pretty long wingspan. He can get up for some big dunks for sure. Uh, plays hard, has good feel, willing ball mover. I don't think ultimately there's any chance he goes in the top 10 unless there's just something, some crazy shenanigans going on with like LeBron agreeing to go there to whatever team it is or something like that. But like he wasn't even the 10th best guy at this event, not even considering other guys who are overseas. And, and when I say best, I'm talking about prospect, not played the best, but he wasn't one of the top 10 like actual players either for frankly um so you know he'll take charges he plays hard he gets out in transition his jumper is decent but also inconsistent he'll have like a lot of weird bad misses and air balls you saw that in the actual hoop summit game anybody who watched that but the biggest problem is he's just not even close to a point guard on offense he is his handle is bad he just didn't matter who he was trying to get by he just couldn't do it at all uh just doesn't have moves doesn't have a ton of feel for getting by guys and just getting separation he just wasn't able to do it anytime he was in an isolation against someone if the clock was running down or something it was uh he wasn't even like a great step back to even get that off like he was just not even close to scoring so that's i mean there's only so high you're gonna be in the draft as like an athletic six four guard who can shoot okay i don't think he's ever gonna be a great shooter. i think he'll just be like adequate but he's also a guy who could be a and obviously he doesn't have a ton of ball skills which he doesn't and so it would and he's not like particularly young he's 18 so it would take massive skill development to me for him to be a top 10 type of player but i think he's someone who can play that kind of combo guard role next to another ball dominant player ironically he probably would have fit pretty well playing next to lebron james so that's kind of the book on him i think he's going to be an nba player definitely athletic enough shoots it well enough and you know wouldn't it's not going to be some farce if he's a late first round pick that's more where i see him though i mentioned reese already about six eight out of france excuse me actually i shorted him he's six nine and a half not a huge wingspan really plays like more of a three I mean, he'll probably end up getting a lot of batum comparisons I, I don't think he has quite that level of bounce but the skill level is pretty good good dribbler good passer can finish with either hand off either foot particularly in transition it can pull up for a mid-ranger pretty well body's still filling out he weighs uh 193 at a little under 610 standing reach 810 so kind of you know combo forward sized but his ball skills for his size are pretty impressive just not really like a nuclear athlete not going to go in and dunk on people necessarily and and a a decent defender definitely has a good head for the game someone who just at that size with the type of skills that he has i think he's going to be a reasonable shooter he's willing shooting it all the way out to nba range no problem at the practices of the blazers facility but not someone that i think has future superstar written all over him i think he'd be kind of more in that second tier of solid wing you know 
know, maybe like a Gordon Hayward type of upside would be maybe how I would see him. Gordon Hayward obviously was a, a very good player. I, I would say he doesn't quite have the same explosiveness as Hayward, but somewhat similar type of game. Like a decent shooter will take him, not like an a, amazing shooter, but pretty good. Probably will get a lot better as time goes on. The other guy who really stood out for the world team and, and was good in the actual game itself was Mackenzie Mbako, who had committed to Doogie's of Nigerian descent, but it was that's what got him on the world team. And he actually reopened his recruitment after this week, which I think was warranted. And at, at 6'9", 215, and another guy doesn't have like a crazy plus wingspan or standing reach, like really more like kind of three size than combo forward size. Like not someone I, I think of as an impact kind of defender, but he does have, he was probably, I would say, the best shooter at this event. And at 6'9", that's pretty good. And he has some ball skills too, not looking to pass exactly, but mid-range can finish okay. He got to the foul line a fair amount in the actual game itself, and but just a, a very projectable shooter. Like he looked really good. Not a guy who I think had a ton of profile. I mean, I guess he's going to Duke, so he had some, but not someone who's be talked about as like a top 10 pick. But if you have that kind of size and you can shoot it and, and do some stuff off the dribble, a decent athlete, that's he's a name we're going to be hearing. I think he'll at least get called in the first round, probably top half of the first round, but I don't know this whole class yet. Someone who got a little bit of pub was Andre Stojakovic, the son of Peja Stojakovic, in particular because Peja apparently taught him to shoot exactly like Peja, that like on the left side of his body, left side of his head, and he shoots it pretty darn well, but unfortunately for him, he's 6'6 instead of 6'9 like Peja was, and that makes a big difference. Like he's really more shooting guard size at this point, doesn't have a ton of athleticism. So I I don't know if he's someone we're going to see in the NBA, particularly because that Stojakovic shot, like he, he, it's not as versatile, like he's not, it's tough for him to shoot going to his right. It's tough for him to like pop and get it off. Like Stojakovic could do it more at 6'9 if, if Andre doesn't grow to that size. Not sure that we're going to be seeing him in the NBA. World team at, at a few guards, no one who is like wowing me as like a potential top half of the first round guy in a normal year. The bigs were relatively, I didn't see anyone that really stuck out to me as like a surefire first round prospect on either of the te- For USA, Isaiah Collier looked, uh, he's going to USC, looked like the best prospect we didn't get to see him shoot a ton of jumpers in the game action he hit a couple of mid-rangers but he's like just six four big strong like he gets the shoulder past you and you're not getting back in front of him at that point uh plays hard as well all these guys played pretty hard other than a a couple of guys that i was relatively unimpressed with that i'll get to but uh yeah collier plays pretty hard he was uh, very useful in the u.s press which basically ended up winning in the game uh, and with like a 10-0 run when the world team didn't have their two best guards in the game early in the first quarter uh you know even like took a charge which you love to see from guys at this level who are big stars like yeah if they put anybody who was like smaller or weaker on him he would just blow right by that guy and had some pretty good passing like it wasn't he wasn't wowing you with his passing but just six four good handle very good athleticism like fits the part of that big power point guard you know not quite a a russell westbrook type of athleticism but probably the next level below that and particularly with his strength it was pretty exciting so so he's the guy he looked like a guy i didn't get a great feel for his skill level because they there was just wasn't that much half court action usa doesn't practice as much as the world team does but what he was able to do in transition and as a driver and i think his shooting is fine 
fine for this player type. Like he's a guy I could see as a top five pick and like the type of guy who would be a top five pick in a normal draft. I mean, there, there are people I talked to there saying like, oh yeah, like none of these guys would be in the top seven of this draft. I'll, I'll see whether I agree with that when I actually start scouting the guys that in this draft. I didn't go to the Hoop Summit last year, of course, because uh, the baby had just been born. Cody Williams is actually number two on Gavoni's board. I'm guessing he's probably going to change that after seeing this because he was had a pretty somnambulant performance. He was the one guy who just didn't bring a ton of intensity. I like literally had no notes on him after two days of practice and I'm like whoa this guy is really ranked that highly like he's kind of thin but didn't really seem to be like a nuclear athlete just didn't play that hard it just wasn't really sure what like his skill was supposed to be I'm sorry I don't have a bunch else to say on him but I was just it surprised me that he was that highly ready he just was a guy yeah uh the guy that I thought was kind of the breakout star that I think he's recruited in like the 30s or 40s usually they'll give local guys from Oregon a little bit of a boost but uh Jackson Shellstad went to the same high school as Peyton Pritchard West Lynn in Oregon he definitely deserved to be there this guy was a very very interesting athlete a little bit undersized unfortunately about 6'2 doesn't appear to have a long wingspan we only got measurements on the world guys we didn't get them on the USA guys but he can shoot the three from way out off the dribble like beyond NBA range he was hitting those pretty well looked very comfortable and it just his intensity level I really pretty just flies through every drill game speed and when you play that hard and you're this type of an athlete one foot two foot like he's getting up for big dunks in some of these drills just flying towards the basket like he hasn't have as much as a high level experience maybe some of these guys he got a couple of jumpers blocked at times when he tried to pull up and just didn't really have a great understanding for like when he could get his shot off against bigger players but when he was open the shot looked great from the outside and you know made some really nice passes out of pick and roll and in transition finding shooters and just the athleticism really stood out as like ability to just blow by guys get to the basket had some spectacular finishes and there was one play where he's going full speed the shot blocker comes over he's about at the right block he's attacked from the top and he converted that into like a fadeaway along the baseline off his left foot going full speed he was able to decelerate so he's really a great athlete and he might have been a little over his head at times like they didn't play him as much in the game like he didn't have the same profile like there are kind of politics involved and gets played in these but uh he to me was the guy who was one of the top three guys on the u.s team the other one of those who was the mvp of the game was ron holland and he was another guy being talked about as like a top i think he's number six on gavoni's board i think even some other people were talking about him being higher than that and just watching him the first day of practice and watching him shoot he's he's like a six eight six nine wing you know looked pretty athletic but not amazing he plays just like a very kind of upright style you know he doesn't really get low as a dribbler like not crazy change of direction or moves like pretty average as a shooter like he'll probably would be get to the point where he's capable but i don't think he'll be good right there and then you saw him get into the scrimmage against the generals and the game and you're like oh i understand it now because this guy has a crazy motor uh he was fantastic in their press and he just never stops like he's just a freight train and transition uh, as well he doesn't even have like unbelievable acceleration necessarily but he just his motor just keeps going he gets rebounds his performance reminded me a lot of justice winslow back in 2014 when the u.s ended up having probably less talent than a world team that included Jokic, carl towns clint capella jamal murray Svi mihaliuk who i was like really high on at that point uh who was like this big star and the the at like age like he might have even only been like just turned 16 at that point but uh 
that was a very good team and like justice winslow just by playing hard was probably the best player in that game and that's what ron holland was he had a bunch of steals out of their press and you know not a guy who has unbelievable feel even but he just is relentless and he's athletic and he's strong and a guy i think could be a pretty interesting combo forward type dj wagner son of dewan wagner he's going to kentucky obviously with the his dad played for john calipari at memphis wasn't really impressed with him in practice he had a better game than he did practice and but he's not like particularly athletic he's kind of more of a i guess a small forward maybe more of, of a shooting guard i think he's like number two number one or two in this class and i didn't see him at that type of level he's actually considered a point guard which was surprising to me uh and he's only actually he's only maybe it's just because of his hair i thought he was taller but he's only 6'2 175 so he doesn't he's not that that's at least what he's listed at on espn maybe he's gotten a little bit bigger than that but not really like a great body not that explosive get to the basket some but not like a ton of explosion to finish at that size and i didn't see him be you know becoming like an awesome shooter maybe he just wasn't hitting shots but he wasn't he just didn't really carry himself shoot the ball like you expected him to be this great shooter or scorer so it, it didn't play with a particularly high intensity level which stood out because there are a lot of other guys in this US, usa team who really did like he and cody williams were kind of guys who didn't bring the same level of intensity as the rest of this team did so i, I wasn't particularly impressed by him obviously there are guys who this this hoop summit is not to be all and end all they got a whole year of college they've got a, a whole year to you know careers before this to have the resume that they have but just solely based on what i've seen so far this week of practice not someone who stood out to me as like a a, a guy who's gonna be like a really high level of nba player but of course there's much to come in all of these guys careers but it's just a great event to go to it's great seeing everyone there it was my first time there in four years because of the pandemic and the baby last year so just got to have some great eats in portland and just kind of shoot the shit with people and have sort of the last relaxed moment before we got these crazy run here to the playoffs and speaking of which dan and i'll be back tomorrow we'll have to preview the one eight and of course talk about the games tomorrow and we're gonna do the early game we're gonna do chicago miami on playback and then if minnesota oklahoma city is close maybe i'll do the fourth quarter of that uh, by myself but thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you all next time till then